Hello, this is Juliet Alvey, and I am recording, re-recording my breakout session from the Mockingbird Midwest conference that I gave on September 30th, 2023. And the title of the breakout session was, How Do You Know There's a Bass Player at Your Door? Who Cares? Performance, Expression, Pressure, and Grace in the Music Industry. Now for my actual breakout session, I had lots of YouTube videos and uh, things that will be a little different when it's just the audio, but I'll do my best to put some audio clips in so you can at least hear what I was talking about. Um, And then of course, some of my jokes, you know, you'll be missing the audience participation. And believe me, I'm telling the truth, people did laugh at the jokes. So um, I'm going to figure out a creative way to make that more realistic. You'll see or hear when it comes to that. Now to start off, I'll just tell you a little bit about myself and my family. Uh, My husband is Ryan Alvey, one of the pastors here at St. Michael's, and we are both contributors to Mockingbird. Ryan contributes sermons to the Mocking Pulpit podcast, and I write posts for the Mockingbird blog. And we've been so appreciative of Mockingbird's ministry, and we were so excited about the conference coming to our church. We were just so honored uh, to have Mockingbird, and I hope that you've had a chance to listen to some of the other sessions, uh, because really the entire thing was just such a joy and such a blessing. So um, I hope you get to do that. Uh, we have lived in here in Bloomington, Minnesota for about four years now, and before that we were at a church in Hawaii on the island of Oahu. And before that, we were in Sacramento, California. Uh, I'm originally from the Los Angeles area, and Ryan and I met at Concordia University in Irvine, California, uh, before we got married and moved to St. Louis, Missouri for his seminary education. Uh, We have three kids who are 13, 9, and 5, and they keep us very busy. Um, I grew up in a musical household. I was surrounded by music throughout my childhood and it's just been a huge part of my life. I can remember as a kid there being times when I was in my room hearing my mom teach piano downstairs, my dad recording music in his studio before he moved it outside of the home, and my brother practicing guitar in the room next to me. And I honestly don't know how I got any homework done in that house. Uh, there was a lot of, lots of sounds going on, but um, very cool to grow up in a household like that. One of the side benefits of growing up in a musical family is, can you guess, musician jokes. In fact, the title of the session is based on a series of jokes about musicians showing up at your door. So I will tell those to you now. How do you know there's a drummer at your door? The knock speeds up. (laughs) How do you know there's a guitar player at your door? They have the wrong key and don't know when to come in. (laughs) How do you know there is a lead vocalist at your door? Oh, don't worry, you'll know. (laughs) And finally, how do you know there's a bass player at your door? Who cares? So my dad is really the best at telling jokes, but I'm going to attempt to tell you one more of my favorites of his. So there are these two musicians who haven't seen each other for about 20 years. One of them says to the other, so what have you been doing for the last 20 years? What what have you been up to? 
And the other one replies, oh, it's been going great. Um, in fact, I co-wrote a song with Taylor Swift, and it made it on the Billboard Top 10 and everything. And the other guy says, oh, wow, I didn't hear about that. The other guy says, yeah. Oh, and um, John Williams had me as a featured soloist on the new Star Wars film. The other guy says, oh, really? I didn't hear about that either. The other guy says, yeah, let's see. What else? Uh, I did all the horn arrangements for a Bruno Mars show. The other guy says, oh, I didn't hear about that either. Wow, that's amazing. And then the other guy says, yeah. But last week, I did a session for a TV show, and it was with a big orchestra, and I hit one very bad note, and we had to do that takeover again. The other guy says, yeah, I heard about that. This joke is a good starting off point for talking about the pressure placed on performers and artists. We all know what it is like to have one little negative outweigh countless and countless positives. For this presentation, I'll be talking about pressures and grace in the music industry. In order to get some firsthand knowledge about this, I interviewed both my dad and my brother to learn about the pressures and the grace they've experienced in their careers. And by the way, I do recommend interviewing family members. It was kind of awkward at first, but it ended up being really cool because we think we know everything about uh, the people who are closest to us, but uh, we really can learn a lot when we start asking questions. So my dad is Dave Siebels. He's a professional piano player and composer. He's written music for 12 TV series, 50 movies, uh, a PBS documentary, which won a National Emmy Award. He's played on many sessions for other performers and has produced over 50 albums for artists in his studio. He was, he was and is Pat Boone's piano player and band leader, um, although Pat doesn't perform as often anymore uh, since he's 89 years old. But he is still active in the, in the industry, and my dad actually just recorded with him a few weeks ago. Uh, Pat Boone is a wonderful person and has been such a blessing to my dad. They've done tons of projects together, but one of Pat Boone's more unique albums was called No More Mr. Nice Guy, which was heavy metal songs played in a big band style. And that whole concept was basically my dad's idea, and he was the co-producer and did some of the big band arrangements on the album. So the album was my dad's idea, but the leather and the fake tattoos uh, that Pat Boone wore was not my dad's idea. Those were all Pat. (laughs) You may remember an MTV Music Award show where Pat and Alice Cooper showed up together. Uh, He's also played with people like Ray Charles, B.B. King, James Darren, and Jane Lynch. He plays gigs with Tony Guerrero, who is a jazz trumpeter, very often. And my dad is an amazing Hammond B3 player. One of his own projects uh, is an album with Gordon Goodwin's Big Fat Band featuring him on the B3. It's such a great album. I really recommend uh, listening to that. So I will uh, play a few clips of his playing right now so you can hear.
So that gives you an idea of uh, my dad and what he's done in his career. Now, my brother is John Siebels, or as I will refer to him for the rest of this presentation, Jonathan. Uh, he is also a professional in the music industry. He's the guitar player for the band Eve Six, and he also manages and produces music for other groups. He is currently the manager for the band Cannons. Uh, Jonathan and Max, the lead singer of Eve Six, met in ninth grade. It was one day in PE class when they talked about how cool it would be to make music their profession and not have a 9-to-5 desk job. They didn't want to conform to the norms, being the good punk rockers that they were. So long story short, they got a record deal before they even graduated high school, and then as soon as they graduated, they were on the road. Since then, Jonathan has worked with lots of other groups, playing, producing, and managing, but Eve Six is still together and making music. So I will play a few clips of his music as well. I would swallow my pride, I would choke on the rinds, but the lack thereof would leave me empty inside. Swallow my doubt, turn it inside out, find nothing but faith in nothing. Wanna put my tender heart in a blender, watch it spin round to a beautiful oblivion. Rendezvous, then I'm through with you. I burn, burn like a Chalk white and oh so frail I see our time has gotten stale The tick-tock of the clock is painful All sane and logical I want to tear it off the wall This is goodbye to the only life I know First one I played was Inside Out. That was their first big hit. 
And the second one I played is called Curtain. And I definitely recommend looking up the video for that one because it's very unique and uh, they recorded the entire thing backwards. So it's really cool. Here is a clip from Cannons, which is the band that Jonathan manages. I just dropped And as I mentioned at the beginning, my mom is a piano teacher, so she has also made a huge impact on me as well as hundreds and hundreds of kids who she's taught over the years. As for me, I have played bass since middle school. I was drawn to the bass because I wanted to be like my big brother, but not exactly like him. So family jam sessions got a bit more fun when I started learning bass instead of flute. Of course, I also took piano lessons growing up, and I also play guitar and sing. Compared to my family members, my musical experience doesn't feel like much, but uh, I have played in many praise bands, and I have served as an interim music director at pretty much all of our churches, and I'm also a songwriter. And a few of my songs have been used in films and TV series, and of course some are used by churches in worship services. I made an album back in 2010 with my dad uh, called See the Cross, so I will play a small clip from that. plan to record another album soon because I have a lot of songs written that need to get recorded and now that all three of my children are in school that might be possible. So now that you have some background uh, I want to share with you some of the specific pressures that my dad and brother shared with me. My dad shared a lot with me about the pressures that come with live performance. Even though he has been playing in front of audiences since he was 14 years old he still gets nervous. All musicians have that stress of wanting to do well. He said to me, you know, it's interesting. I can play the most amazing stuff in rehearsals. He tries to have that rehearsal type attitude of this doesn't really matter when he's in front of an audience too, but that's easier said than done. He does his best to consciously relax and take deep breaths and do what he knows he can do. There are three main sources of pressure when you're performing. Uh, one is the audience and worrying about, will they like it? Um, number two is the other musicians that you're playing with. Kind of worrying about, will I measure up with the other people that I'm playing with here? And then the third, of course, is yourself. Just living up to your own standards. 
My dad has always taken note that the best musicians to watch are ones who look like they're having fun, like Jimmy Smith, who he calls the, the godfather of jazz organ. So he tries to do all those physical things to help him relax and smile and have fun. And rather than trying to measure up with the other musicians, he tries to enjoy the talents of the other people he's playing with. For example, if someone else is soloing, he looks at that person and appreciates them rather than just being super focused on his own part. After all, band members are not just separate parts that magically come together. It's like having a conversation or going for a walk or a run with someone. You make adjustments in your own actions to support the others. When a band is cohesive, it is really fun and does kind of feel like magic. But no matter how great the band is, when you're doing something in front of others, there's obvious pressure. Now, another type of pressure in the music industry is the business side of it. My dad said, it seemed like the more I needed a job, the harder it was to get one. This is where his faith played a huge role in his career. When he didn't know where his next paycheck was going to come from, he trusted God. Why is it that the more you need something, the less likely it seems to work? It's like people sense desperation, and that's not an attractive vibe or something. This seems to happen in relationships, too. When we are seeking a job or a relationship or anything we sincerely want or need, we really want to not care. But this nothing-to-lose attitude is very difficult to fake. My brother had some good insight on not caring. He shared that when Eve Six first started going out on tour, there was a lot of pressure around every show. It was a good, if it was a good show, they were happy, and if it wasn't one of their better ones, they would get really down. And he said that one of the hard things is that everyone always has an opinion about everything when it comes to a performance. The sound wasn't very good, or it needs to be a more lively performance, or you guys should get headset mics so that you can be like the boy bands and run around the stage more. If there were technical difficulties or he had trouble with his in-ear monitors or whatever, he felt really frustrated and like it was a bad show. But then he started to realize that the crowd doesn't know or care about any of these problems or opinions. No one on the outside is thinking these things, and so he was able to not worry so much about whether he thought it was a good show or not. And as I mentioned before, Eve Six got a record deal before they even finished high school. So we're talking about 18 and 19-year-olds touring all over the place, doing these huge shows. Their brains weren't even fully developed, and they're expected to handle these pressures. He said that experiencing fame at such a young age was exciting, terrifying, fun, hard, basically all of the emotions. Jonathan said that handling this pressure and learning to care less really just came with time and experience and knowing what to expect. Another pressure in the music industry is just the pure logistics it takes to put on a concert. There's a YouTube video called The Absurd Logistics of Concert Tours, and it's about 15 minutes um, you could probably look it up if you're interested, but it's about all of the behind-the-scenes stuff that happens with bus schedules, lighting rigs, pyrotechnics, sound technicians, meals, hotels, etc. Uh, that are necessary for big tours. Amazingly, my brother at 18 and 19 years old kind of naturally became the liaison for the band with these details. Obviously, they had a manager and record company and venues that planned all of this stuff, but if there was a question or a problem, he was usually the person who spoke for the band. And he must have been paying a great deal of attention to all this because he is now a manager who plans all of these details. Both as a performer and as a manager, there is a ton of pressure surrounding logistics, the part that the audience never even sees. 
At this point in Jonathan's career, he has been in almost every different scenario. He says, it's a tough business and it's never not tough. So I asked him what he loves about the music business, because if it's never not tough, then what makes it worth it? He obviously loves the creative part of it and music in general, but he also said he loves helping people avoid mistakes and problems that he has dealt with and navigate the wins and successes as well. He finds it very fulfilling, and his experience with touring and pulling off big shows makes him uniquely qualified to help others do this. But in my conversation with Jonathan, it sounded like there were so many pressures and so many difficulties I still needed to understand how he handled it all. He said, in the moment, problems seem like such a big deal, but when you look at the big picture and don't get caught up in all of the little things, it is easier to handle. He then quoted David Lee Roth, who I believe was quoting Richard Carlson, the psychotherapist and author, saying, don't sweat the small stuff, and it's all small stuff. So even when things don't feel small at the time, you may look back and not even remember what you were getting so worked up about. Jonathan said, if you live and die by every success and failure, it is an emotional roller coaster. He said, handling these successes and failures with a kind of evenness is the key. Now that last part blew me away when he told me that, taking both success and failure with evenness. I have to admit that this was a bit of an epiphany for me. I was not so naive to think that Jonathan didn't have struggles or that his career hadn't been an emotional roller coaster for him. But in my perspective, always being John's little sister, I guess I always assumed that because he had achieved fame, that he could focus on the high points and minimize the low points. In fact, what I learned from him is that it was the opposite. When you live by your high points and successes, your next success seems almost like a failure if it didn't match your previous success. For example, Eve Six's first hit, Inside Out, was number one in the charts. Then their next single came out, a song called Leech, and it still made it to the top five in the charts. But because it didn't match Inside Out, it felt like a failure. Reality is that an upward trajectory of success is not possible. I knew that it was an up and down path, but I always thought that the best way to live as an artist was to just be really positive about everything and ignore the negatives. I thought, get really excited about the successes and then endure and learn from the fails. But my brother's point is, it's all small stuff. So all of the outside pressures, the logistics, the extremes in success and failure are a lot to handle. But I would argue that the loudest voice and the most severe pressure comes from within ourselves. That joke about the two musicians catching up could really be interpreted as a conversation with yourself. Just like the movie Fight Club, the many voices turn out to be one person, you beating yourself up. Rick Rubin, uh, a famous record producer, wrote a book called The Creative Act, A Way of Being. This book basically consists of one quotable quote after another. In it, he says, the people who choose to do art are many times the most vulnerable. There are singers considered among the best in the world who can't bring themselves to listen to their own voice. And these are not rare exceptions. I mean, I saw this just in asking Jonathan which videos to show as an example in this presentation. He said, whatever you think, I can't watch any of them. And I can definitely relate with not wanting to watch recordings of myself or hear myself for that matter. Rubin also says, one of the reasons so many great artists die of overdoses early in their lives 
is because they're using drugs to numb a very painful existence. The reason it's painful is the reason they became artists in the first place, their incredible sensitivity. These charged emotions, powerful when expressed in the work, are the same dark clouds that beg to be numbed, to allow sleep or to get out of bed. It's a blessing and a curse. Creative types are usually sensitive, so to combine that personality with the pressures that come along with creating and performing takes a toll emotionally. One practical tip from Ruben, which I think we can apply to other areas of life as well, is this. We tend to think that what we're making is the most important thing in our lives and that it's going to define us for all eternity. Consider moving forward with the more accurate point of view that it's a small work, a beginning. And similar to what Ruben is saying here, uh, my friend Kip Fox, who is a Christian songwriter and also the director of the Songwriter Initiative Group at Concordia Irvine, said one time, the less you write, the higher the stakes become emotionally when you do. So just like Ruben and my brother expressed, treat it all as small stuff. These practical tips from my dad, brother, and Ruben and Kip are all helpful but it really is a constant battle to fight the loud voices in your own mind. These voices are a result of what is called ego. Ego is probably a factor in all professions, but I'm willing to bet it's probably more pronounced when in a performance profession. Ego says, all of the good stuff that happens is what I deserve, and all of the bad stuff that happens I don't deserve and is someone else's fault. For me, the biggest pressure I have always felt as a musician and songwriter is in my own mind. I can go from thinking I am the worst musician in the world and should just quit ever playing another note again, to thinking I am the most talented in the room and everyone else is making me look bad. This is ego. I'm not always the best at identifying where the different voices are coming from, but I do believe that Satan uses our ego against us. He does his best to make us focus on two extremes. I'm the worst, or I am the best. Here are some of the things that I hear in my mind when it comes to performing music, and probably other areas of my life, and maybe you've heard some of these in your own mind as well. You're not getting the credit you deserve. You're not as good as so-and-so. You're way better than so-and-so. You're going to make a fool out of yourself. You suck. You can't. You'll never be good enough. If no one compliments you, they didn't like it. They're following the, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say it at all rule. Forget about the words you're singing, just make sure you're impressive. And worry about all that technical stuff that you have no control over. This struggle of worrying about being the worst or the best is beautifully expressed in the Half Alive song called Nobody. I'm going to play a little clip from that. So exhausted, ego, feelings... Freeload and leave me so empty All the parties of people moving the needle Obsessing, never ending Watch me take it over, move your body over Make a little room for me See him at the top, leave him at the bottom Focus on the come up, become someone Moving up the ladder, doesn't really matter As long as I'm in the lead See him at the top, leave him at the bottom, focus on the come up. 
The chorus says, It's hard to be someone, and it hurts to be nobody. Playing this game, it's easy to lose both ways. This is so true. We want to be someone. We want to be seen as the best. But that is a lot of pressure, even if you accomplish it. And we definitely don't want to be a nobody, because that hurts. This game is not winnable. So where's the grace? The release of pressure? To be honest, as I was thinking about performing from my own experience and hearing from my dad and my brother, there are lots of little graces. I might be more likely to call them coping mechanisms. Deep breathing, smiling, not putting too much weight on one project, remembering it's all small stuff. But these are small ways of releasing the pressure in order to do the thing we love, which is music. I would even say these little graces are gifts from God, and I am thankful for them. But where is the true grace in the music industry? I'm talking about the gospel, the good news from God in Jesus Christ. True grace is not just tips to handle the pressure or the good outweighing the bad. Grace is more extreme than that. It is completely undeserved and unexpected. It is forgiveness where there is condemnation. It's life when all there is is death. It is the answer to judgment. The pressures in the music industry are rooted in judgment, just like in other professions. We all face judgment. The effects just might be amplified when you're creating art and releasing that into the hands of others. It's a vulnerable position. The judgment from the audience, fellow musicians, and ourselves, positive or negative, holds power over the performer. It's easy for an artist or a performer to feel like their worth and who they are is based on what they produce. Are you somebody or are you nobody? So who are we? Who are we in God's eyes? And who does that make us in the eyes of others? To answer those questions, I want to look at a couple of sections in the book of Ephesians, the first and second chapter. From Ephesians 1, we read, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. God chose us to be holy and blameless in his sight. He loves us, and he made us children through his Son, Jesus Christ. Through Christ's death and resurrection, we have redemption and forgiveness. The riches of God's grace are lavished on us. He does not just put up with us or cope with our weakness. He lavishes every undeserved gift of his grace on us, so that we not only have the lack of bad stuff, like sin and death, but we are fully accepted as his child. We are loved. In the next section of Ephesians, in chapter 2, we read, Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, 
and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This is grace, that Jesus took all of the judgment that we deserved on himself, so that we reap the benefit that he deserved. This is a lot of theological language in these passages, but I don't want to gloss over this too quickly because it really changes everything. If Jesus took all judgment on himself, this does not only mean that we're in good standing with God. This also means that any judgment that other people throw at us no longer holds any power over us, whether the judgment is true or not. It was nailed to the cross. Jesus took it all. We don't have to defend ourselves if we feel it is unjust. And if it is just, we can apologize and move on, knowing that it does not change who we are. Therefore, we don't have to play the game that Half-Alive talks about, the never-ending game that determines if you are someone or nobody. You don't have to play the game at all. You have already won. You already are someone to God. He created you. He loves you no matter what. You never have to earn his acceptance. The message translation of Romans 2.11 says, God pays no attention to what others say or what you think about you. He makes up his own mind. And thank God for that. Starting from a place of acceptance is the only way to freedom in creative work. To know that I am loved whether I created something or not, that is grace. Lauren Daigle has a song called You Say, and it expresses this perfectly. It says in the verse, I keep fighting voices in my mind that say I'm not enough. Every single lie that tells me I will never measure up. Am I more than just the sum of every high and every low? Remind me once again just who I am, because I need to know. You say I am loved. And it continues. So when I actually listen to what God is saying to me, This is in contrast to those voices I mentioned earlier that I tend to hear in my mind. When I listen to God, this is what I hear. I love you the way you are. I love to hear you sing and play. I hear your prayers. I know you feel weak, but I give you strength. I created you to worship me in such creative ways. Thank you for giving my people words to sing to me. You will never run out of ways to praise me. You will never run out of melodies. Now this last one is a mystery I will never understand because there are really only 12 notes. I can hear you praise whether the mic and amps are on or not. It's not about you. Don't be so hard on yourself. It's not about you. Don't be so full of yourself. Who cares what other people say? Only my opinion matters. And all praise is beautiful music to my ears, whether in tune or not. And so as performers, and even if you don't have a career that requires you to be on stage, I'm sure you you do your share of performing. Uh, We are free to be who God says we are, and not what all the voices, including our own, say we are. What does this acceptance and freedom from judgment look like? Being loved and being someone to God changes everything. Here's an example. When my son was a toddler, he was very affectionate to everyone. He was the kid in our music class who would go around giving hugs to every other parent in the room. One time he was showering some of my friends with his usual affection, 
and one of them said, wow, he is so loved. And I replied, yeah, he is very loving. But she corrected me. She said, no, I mean, I can tell he is very loved. Behind the love that he gave, she could see the love that he had received. Because he was loved and accepted, he was free to give away all of that love and more. This acceptance and freedom we have in God's love is what frees us to create, without fear of judgment. We know that we are worth something to God apart from what we produce, and this allows our work to be an offering, not a test. And God uses this offering to bless others. At its worst, art is creating something and critics standing outside of that and looking on with judgment. At its best, art is a shared experience. A song that expresses what you're feeling is like an empathetic friend. You feel like someone understands. You feel heard. So I am a big 21 Pilots fan, and I really connect with their lyrics. Uh, and I wrote a Mockingbird post shortly after moving to Minnesota from Hawaii when I was feeling really out of place and insecure about their song called My Blood. In that insecure time, I was comforted by the song's lyrics that repeat, I'll go with you, I'll go with you, I'll go with you. I felt this was Jesus' voice reassuring me over and over that he is facing this battle with me. This song is actually a song about brothers, and it meant a lot to me and became my own expression. So I don't know if I'm being too loose with my interpretation. Am I allowed to morph any lyrics into my own meaning? I mean, those are the questions I'm not sure about, but what I am sure about is that God uses particular situations to bless many. Tyler Joseph, the singer of 21 Pilots, talks quite a bit about his struggle with depression and suicidal thoughts. I've not personally experienced those things, but I connect with his description of pain and darkness in life, and also the hope he expresses. His particular pain helps me to express mine. This shared experience is powerful on an individual level, like what I described there, uh, singing, singing along with something in the car or in your room, but it's even more powerful when it becomes a community joined in an expression together. As a worship leader, my mind went immediately to a church service, where it is not a performance necessarily, but a shared experience and participatory. But as I thought about the best performances that I've experienced, even outside of the church, They've been ones that have the same participatory element, the sense of, even though I'm in a crowd of people, that I'm on the inside of something. The audience and the performers somehow become one, and we all feel something. A couple of examples of this came to my mind, and when I presented this breakout session live, um, I showed YouTube videos of these, so you could maybe look them up, but um, I'll just do my best to describe them. So... Again, 21 pilots are masters at involving the crowd. Uh, my son and I went to one of their concerts, and when they did their song Mulberry Street, he had different parts of the audience hold up their flashlights from their phones at different times of the beat. So uh, it just was such a cool experience seeing everybody else participate, and we felt like we were part of the song. We were part of the performance. Another example that I thought of is we saw the Killers play at the Twin City Summerfest, and they had a fan come up on stage and play drums for one of their songs. They must do this regularly because this kid was prepared, and you could tell it just made his day and probably year. Um, and so hopefully you can look up a video of the Killers with a fan drummer. 
Um, but this is just another example of feeling like an insider. And we long for these types of experiences. We all want to be on the inside. And we are indeed on the inside of God's love. Whether we are the creator, performer, or audience, God's love unites us. I thank him for the gift of music, which gives us a mysteriously powerful expression to feelings that we don't always know what to do with. I thank him for the people like my dad and my brother who do not let the pressure in the music business keep them from using their gifts. And most of all, I thank God for the freedom he gives us in Christ to live as his creative children. Thank you so much for listening to this breakout session, and uh, hopefully you can think of some songs or some concerts that you've been to that have become your own expression of emotion, ways that God has used music in your life. Thank you for listening. I'll listen for a song in the distance. Are you ready? One, two, three, right side.